From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Space may be the final frontier, but some feel it hasn't been quite as accessible to LGBTQ plus people. We'll share one Colorado man's very personal mission to change that. You can't be what you can't see. And I think that applies to so many things in life. You know, the power of representation is very powerful. People need role models growing up to inspire them. Plus, we celebrate 40 years of jazz in Winter Park and find out what the annual festival has meant to generations of Coloradans. It's something about the clouds up against, you know, the mountains. The mountain. Sometimes it looks a little rainy, and then you have this amazing music and the food trucks, and it's just a total vibe. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Let's start with a little bit of history. A story that, honestly, I just learned for the first time myself about Sally Ride, the first American woman to fly in space. At age 32, she also became the youngest American astronaut to do so, and that was back in 1983. After a long storied career that included being inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame and the Astronaut Hall of Fame and being awarded the NASA Space Flight Medal twice, she died peacefully at her home on July 23, 2012 after a 17-month battle with pancreatic cancer. It would not be until her death, however, at the age of 61, that Ride would publicly share, and only via her obituary, I should note, that she was gay. Ride chose to do so by acknowledging her partner of 27 years. Ride's sister would later say that Sally was a very private person who was deeply uncomfortable with discussing her sexuality publicly. And I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I suspect that my guest here in the studio today would agree with Sally Ride's right and choice to keep her private life, well, private. But he doesn't want those who are LGBTQ plus to do so because they feel they have to. He says LGBTQ plus people are chronically underrepresented in the world of science and space. And that's why he's founded an organization that seeks to draw more to the industry. Jason Reimuller is the executive director of the International Institute for Astronautical Sciences and the executive director and founder of the Boulder-based nonprofit Out Astronaut. Jason, welcome. Thank you, Sandra. It's a pleasure to be here with you. You say there has yet to be an openly identifying LGBTQ plus person selected as a professional astronaut, and that's why you felt impelled to found Out Astronaut. Tell us about that. Well, that's true. You know, there have been three, as we know, uh, LGBTQ astronauts. Sally Ride, Dr. Ride, uh, broke so many barriers and did so many positive things. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the reality of her situation, uh, she she chose not to come out publicly. Uh, and we didn't know about that until her death. Since then, Wendy Lawrence 
uh, had come out, but long after retirement. And most recently, Anne McLean was more or less forced out in a very public uh, incident a number of years ago. And so as far as professional astronauts go, this doesn't necessarily help. There's barriers that persist. And the fact that that there's still to this day in 2023, there's never been somebody that is out and identifying at the time of their selection that's been selected by a professional national space agency uh, still reflects on barriers that need to be broken. And as I mentioned, Sally Ride would only publicly acknowledge this after her death. And this is the 40th anniversary of her historic odyssey into space. So how does it feel to hear her story? Dr. Ride's story is, I always quote her, and she says, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And I think that applies to so many things in life. You know, power of representation is very powerful. People need role models growing up to inspire them to, to appreciate science, to appreciate education. Um, and so, you know, Dr. Ride, um, you know, let's, let's, let's put things a little bit in perspective, too. Uh, her first flight was, I believe, in 1983. Now, this is almost 20 years after Valentina Tereshkova flew on Vostok 6. So, so that barrier had been broken long ago. Why did we have to wait? We're talking now about the first woman to step foot on the moon here in 2024. Okay, well, that's great, but we should have been talking about that a generation or two ago. Mm. You know, we're things that that are now not being brought to the forefront, you know, about LGBTQ representation. Um, you know, these are things that have long been ignored. We should be talking about the first gender non-binary or gender or transgender person on the moon now. <laughs> so um, Dr. Wright broke the barrier she could at her time. And I, I don't want to speculate um, what her career was like, but I suspect that there were so many things that she was empowering and, and barriers that she was breaking. And at that time, you know, this is 1983, um, there was, you know, a very conservative environment. Uh, there was still a lot of the the old boy culture, the, the don't ask, don't tell mindset. Um, had she come out, she probably realized she could not have broken the other barriers that she set uh, to mm -hmm. do. So she was probably balancing things pragmatically at the same time. Um, that said, I, I know had she been able to come out, how, had there been a society <clears throat> that allowed her the the flexibility and, the, and and empowered her to come out, I know my life would have been a lot easier. I would have known that that there was a path that was already established, and I, and I think I could speak for a lot of the generation that that grew up, you know, and and you know, seeing people like Dr. Ride and uh, doing what she did in space. Now, you have noted that studies have shown that up to 50% of LGBTQ youth leave STEM fields, and they believe the lack of out LGBTQ plus STEM role models contributes to that. I believe that's true. And I, there have been a number of studies that showed up to this level of underrepresentation. And I think this is a problem that faces us all. You know, when you look at something like space, uh, this is where we understand our planet. This is where we lay the seeds to be a multiplanetary species. There's so many things that space represents. And to have underrepresented people, you know, frankly, we're not hitting on all cylinders. And it should be something on all of us as space professionals, as scientists, as people that advocate for STEM to, to make sure that all our voices are heard and that there are 
avenues for everyone that inspires to be a part of this that they can all see themselves. Well, we met at the Denver Pride Festival, and you shared, you know, the information about your program. But you also mentioned that you, in fact, are also a gay man in this industry. And in light of these challenges you described, how did you get into the field? I was born into this. This was something that I grew up as long as I could remember. Um, One of the stories I always like to share, I grew up very close with my grandfather, and he was a career aviator. And he flew B-25s in the war. And one of the things that is a little bit interesting, for those that have read Catch-22, Joseph Heller was a captain that served under my grandfather. And after the war, he fictionalized all of the people he had served with into Catch-22. Well, my grandfather... um, was fictionalized as the chief antagonist, Colonel Cathcart. So I remember asking my granddad once what he thought about Joseph Heller, and granddad paused, and he goes, well, Captain Heller was very average. So he couldn't say anything bad, but you know, he'd never appreciated the satire and the humor. I mean, I've read the book. I, I thought it was masterful in what he did. <laughs> And Joseph Heller did. But that's what I grew up with. You know, I was always inspired by granddad's stories and the Apollo astronauts growing up. And it was something that was very real. I knew from a young age because I had, you know, this, you know, these opportunities and I had, you know, the, the, these influences that I grew to appreciate STEM and science and space flight. And uh, I was always very grateful for that. And it's something that I, it's a privilege, I hope, that, um, that more people can have, uh, more people can have in the world. So that's what I grew up with. And I, I realized, um, you know, later in life coming out and realizing that I was very frequently the only one that had any interest in this or maintained that. And it was something that I always felt like juggling two worlds. And I saw later in life that, you know, how many of the barriers still exist, but it was still something that I've always held as, as part, you know, try to be a part of this, uh, this profession, because I realized how important, uh, how important space is and what it represents. And my, my, almost my, my, um, relation with space has changed as I understand the social impacts that it makes. Um, I was a, what they call a highly qualified candidate twice in the NASA selection for, uh, for astronauts, that was, I, I think, when you break it down to about 400 finalists. And wow. I started to realize what that would really mean uh, if I had been selected. And so I learned that that kind of, um, that kind of role would uh, empower a community more. I, I think I've heard it said by many NASA astronauts that anyone that makes the highly qualified list would, would, do, would do well. But I think that that was something very particular that I realized was, was very much needed. Well, back to this idea of you need to see it to be it. Yeah. How did you manage that, not seeing an example, but also having this deep passion for yourself? I think because I had a, such a passion for space at such a young age, there was that really kind of defined a lot of my life going forward and what I studied and learned and the, the you know, the kind of a, a life of scientific exploration in a way that that kind of continued that interest in space. I think it was very much something that I just knew I needed to pursue regardless. And if there were barriers, if there was no one else, and that would 
that would be something that that maybe is something that I needed to do is to try to bring these uh, these worlds together. In your view, is America ready for an openly LGBTQ plus astronaut? I, I think America's been ready for a long time. I think this should have been done a long time ago. The fact that we're still discussing this uh, is is kind of shameful. Um, it strikes me as much as NASA and other organizations do to talk about diversity and equity and inclusion, um, that this is still a thing. And it's almost being ignored because there's so many systems that that have been in motion for a long time. You know, there's been systemic discrimination. There's been don't ask, don't tell. And it shows the culture that we're up against. And these things have perpetuated now. And it's great that NASA talks about pride events. But at the same time, the highest profile people, the people that put a face on everything we do are often the astronauts themselves mm-hmm. because they talk on so many things and they're so personal. They're, they're really ambassadors to STEM and they carry that duty to inspire and to educate people about STEM broadly, you know, to be that, that person that is a truly global person, you know, this, this international persona, this person that places service above self, everything that we really want more of in, in society. Somehow astronauts are often put in that role of embodying. But if you really want to be true to the words that you're saying and the culture that you want the, the space program to represent, eventually you have to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So the goal of Out Astronaut is to, quote, drive advocacy, maintain a professional presence in international conferences, hold contests that produce visibility of LGBTQ plus aspiring STEM professionals, and address gaps in aeromedical knowledge pertaining to LGBTQ plus people. What does that look like and what does that entail? <laughs> That's a lot. Uh, there's a lot <laughs> yeah, of things we're trying to do. That's <laughs> why so I had to quote you. <laughs> So yes, representation is one, and that's what the contest is for. It's a, it's a multi-phase contest, and this is about producing professionals. It's not necessarily about sending someone to space. What we really want to do is, is change the industry and bring professionals that are going to demand a seat at the table because they're professionals. They're not dependent upon you know, funding or money. It, these are people that are going to build this, this future. So the first stage of this contest we call phase one really is about creating uh, an avenue where more people can tell their stories. And we challenge applicants to not only come up with a, a credible experiment that can be done through the resources of the International Institute for Astronautical Sciences. And this is the institute that uh, largely sponsors Out Astronaut. So they come up with an idea of something novel, like a thesis, a technical novel, but at the same time, they come up with a social impact project. How are we going to work together so that this award recipient will make the biggest impact to empowering people to come out? And you see um, people that have applied, and the, the most touching things are people that apply often from uh, environments, sometimes countries or cultures, where they do so at physical risk. And yet it means so much to them to have this voice and to advocate for STEM and be out as an LGBTQ person. 
And of course, you are referring to your annual Out Astronaut Contest yes. in which you invite people from all over the country or the world to apply. In the continent. Right now, it is it's exclusive to North America, Canada, U.S., Mexico, Central America, uh, Caribbean. You know, and ideally, we want to see space flights, but research space flights, not tourist space flights. You know, space flights that leverage these platforms so that novel research is being done. Uh, a benefit and educational outreach really try to optimize that and show that it's still space can continue to inspire and continue to touch everyone. Any final words as we wrap up? A lot of this comes to understanding and appreciating the power of representation. And sometimes we get critiqued about, you know, why does this matter? You know, just pick the best person for the job. But representation does does matter. And I, a lot of people that say this are, you know, are, are well-meaning. But I think, you know, in my own experience, um, one thing that's always been very um, difficult to talk about is um, helping to, um, you know, back in 1999, uh, starting one of the uh, one of the first rugby teams for gay athletes. And mm-hmm. one of the other founders um, was a uh, man named Mark Bingham. And two years later... Um, Mark would be one of the four that fought back on Flight 93 on September 11th. Mm. And, um, you know, we, uh, it was painful to lose a teammate and another founder in that way. The legacy that he left uh, was profound. And we started a tournament. And at that time, there were only four teams in the world that were specifically out, uh, supportive of gay athletes. And we had a tournament in his honor called the Bingham Cup. And in 15 years, um, that tournament's grown to be the biggest amateur rugby tournament in the world. Like 15 years, like half a generation. Like how you can empower a community as long as there's representation. And you see how rugby unions become one of the biggest team sport played by gay men in the U.S. Um, And so that was powerful. You know, you saw... People talk about what Mark and the others did in saving the lives in the Capitol, but they don't talk about. I see you're tearing up. (laughs) They don't talk about every time go to a Bingham Cup and there's always some kids that say that they saved their lives because they felt suicidal because they never felt a part of anything. Mm. So... I appreciate you sharing that. You know, (laughs) it really kind of puts into perspective the the statement that representation matters because you never know how that representation is affecting someone else. Jason, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Jason Reimler, the executive director of the International Institute for Astronautical Sciences and executive director and founder of Out Astronauts. Colorado-based nonprofit that is working to address the underrepresentation of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people working in science and space. It's sponsored by the International Institute for Astronautical Sciences. The Out Astronaut Initiative also provides grants to promising LGBTQ plus students currently pursuing professions in space-related fields. The deadline for the next application is July 15th, and we will link to the information page on our website. CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. 
Great classical music to keep you company through the night. It's night music on Colorado Public Radio. For a list of the music we're playing tonight, visit us online at CPR.org. Winter Park, Colorado, the quaint little town and ski resort near Fraser, is known for being home to the Winter Park Express Ski Train and for its cross-country skiing opportunities, including at Devil's Thumb Ranch. But in the spring and summer months, Winter Park is known for mountain biking, hiking, fishing, and open-air concerts. One of those concerts is a jazz festival that began at a tiny venue on the mountain at Winter Park Resort. That little festival later relocated to Rendezvous Event Center, a much bigger venue, and began to draw some of the biggest names in the music industry. I'm talking about the Winter Park Jazz Festival, and it's turning 40 this year. Yes, 4-0. That's pretty impressive for a music event in a tiny mountain town in Colorado to demonstrate such longevity. Joining us now to tell us about it is Becky Taylor, longtime MC and arguably the face of the fest, as I've nicknamed her. We're also joined by two longtime diehard fans, Tracy Williams and her sister Stephanie Williams, both of Aurora. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, 40 years. Becky, how does it feel to hear that? <laughs> wow, I know. It is the most anticipated festival of the summer. That, that's what makes it grow. Not only Coloradans, but we're starting to get people in from all across the country. It feels great. 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> so many things that start up and they're great and they just kind of like lose momentum. But to maintain a consistent fan base and for people to come every year for 40 years, that is yeah. amazing. You've been with the fest for about 30 years now. What do you remember about those early years? Well, the early years, we were on the mountain, and um, we had to build a stage, and then the, the actual ski slope is where the audience sat. I know a lot of people, people love that because they could bring their camping gear, like their tents and all of those things. And uh, But they were so spread out because the ski slope is so big. When they decided to do some renovation there at the resort, the Winter Park Chamber is who has been uh, involved in this from the beginning, um, moved it to the park, which was downtown. It wasn't always the Rendezvous Event Center. It was just the downtown park. Mm. They moved it there and then from there built the Rendezvous Event Center, a more permanent type of a stage and a backstage area that uh, worked for festivals. Well, the lineup has been incredible over the years. Brian Culbertson... Pieces of a Dream, Boney James, The Average White Band, Colorado's own Gerald Albright, to name a few. But what makes this festival unique seems to be the effort that's put into celebrating traditional and contemporary R&B acts. Also, Fantasia, The Neville Brothers, Cool in the Gang, uh, Charlie, last name Wilson, <laughs> and Babyface. <laughs> How would you say that the festival has evolved over the years? In order to grow a festival, you can't just be this one concentrated genre of jazz. Mm. Uh, like Gerald Albright, you also like Boney James. It's the same audience. Mm -hmm. So we've always tried to do what we call our party Saturday, a party band, an R&B band. Mm -hmm. And these are artists that the jazz audience 
also loves, but then the younger audience knows them as well. And so you have to kind of not pigeonhole yourself. Well, I know this is going to be a hard one for you, but what are some of your favorite Winter Park Jazz Festival (laughs) memories? I know there's so many. It's hard to pick one. The Colorado audience, we love live music and we show our appreciation. You know, Babyface was awesome. Charlie Wilson. One year we had Mint Condition. I mean, it's been, it's incredible. Will Downing, Dave Cause, it just goes on and on. I can't pick which are my favorites over the years Mm -hmm. because I can't even pick who was the favorite of one year, you know? Yeah, it's so many to choose from. Let's bring sisters Tracy and Stephanie into the conversation. Tracy, from what I understand, you didn't want to go the first time your mom wanted you to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sort of started with my mom going up uh, with her girls. And one year uh, for my birthday. Her like girlfriends? Mm-hmm. Her mm-hmm. girlfriends. And they were all going to go, and she wanted us to go, too. Well, I, I had a little boyfriend at home, and I had planned mm-hmm. to spend my birthday with him. <laughs> but she was like, nope, 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 you're going to come on up. And so we were like, okay. And at the time, we weren't going up and, you know, getting condos and stuff. So we would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to make the drive Mm. up there. And it was on the ski slope. And um, she got me to come. She got my sister to come and my cousin to come. And so we all went for the first time. I could swear that was like in 1990, I think. And we had a great time. We got up there, and I had never been to a jazz festival or any kind of festival of any type. Mm -hmm. And while I was reluctant to go, we ended up having such a good time that the subsequent times that we went, sometimes we went with mom and sometimes we went without her. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of been going like that. Now we've sort of taken over, and now we're inviting her up. Mm -hmm. So she'll be coming with us this year. And for you two, it's really a family affair. Like you bring the kids, you Mm -hmm. have cousins, Mm -hmm. and you rent the condo with Mm -hmm. the hot tub. It's like really an experience. (laughs) What do do you want to say about that, Stephanie? Well, you know, we just, we learned so much from the first time that we went. Like sunscreen and an umbrella, (laughs) you know, all these different things we knew nothing about in Mm -hmm. the beginning. And now... Uh, Frankly, we bring up too much stuff, I think, you know, (laughs) but it's all about being comfortable at Mm -hmm. the festival. I don't know. It's it's something about the clouds up against, you know, the mountains. mountains It is beautiful. Yeah, sometimes (laughs) it looks a little rainy and then you have this amazing music and the food trucks and it's just a total vibe. Mm -hmm. Total vibe. I think what stood out to me was it really had a family reunion type vibe because like half of Denver is there. It's like you see everyone Mm -hmm. and uh, I always see you guys in the corner. They have a whole system with the with the fancy seats and everything and um, it's just I don't know it's just really relaxing and it's not like a stressful event. Kind of feels like a family reunion vibe. We are bringing family members. Family members are coming in from out of town Mm -hmm. and it does feel like a family reunion because once we secure the condo and we decide what everyone's going to bring, and it's a big potluck, mm-hmm. and it is it is a family reunion. Yeah. And then once we had kids, we learned to make even more accommodations. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah. and I did not realize for a while that kids 12 and under are free. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And um, the first few years that we went up there, it started with uh, bringing our cousin Jackie with us, mm-hmm. and she 
would stay at the condo, watch the kids while we went to the concert. Mm-hmm. Well, once the kids got to be six or seven years old, they were like, well, we want to party we too. Go yeah, too. We want to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So now we take them with us and we invite Jackie up just because we like her. <laughs> so. This festival, as Becky mentioned, it's about jazz. Obviously, that is the backdrop that is in the name, but it also brings traditional and contemporary R&B acts, and many that we all grew up on when we were youngsters and teenagers going to concerts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that just made the enjoyment level even deeper, mm-hmm. because I think back in the 90s, it was a lot of jazz, but now you go up there and you're seeing folks that, you know, we were partying with or partying to in the 90s and 2000, and so you're going to see the jazz staples and you're going to see the baby faces. You're going to see the cool in the gangs. In vogue. Yeah. I mean, you know. I mean, it's, it's a little like, bit of something for everybody. Yeah. I yeah. mean, like you said, Fantasia, we were like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, one of yeah. my personal favorites, and I work this into every conversation, is I love Prince. And so when I saw <laughs> Sheila E, mm-hmm. that was one of my first ones. And uh, I'm I think I'm, I'm trying to decide what's my favorite memory, but uh, Fantasia was awesome. But uh, also, everyone seems to remember when Belle Biv DeVoe, which is like the offshoot group of New Edition, mm-hmm. which I call the Temptations of Our Generation. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. they brought so many people on the stage and they were doing like <laughs> the old so 90s fun. dances. And yeah. it was just so much fun. It and was. it was just like, mm-hmm. I really look forward to this mm-hmm. every year. It's right. really like community mm-hmm. and just a real intimate um, vibe. It's it's it become a, our, the hallmark of our summer yeah. uh, because it, it feels like it's right smack in the middle of the summer and it's what we do. I mean, we do other things throughout the summer, but the Jazz Festival is the hallmark of mm-hmm. our event. So. And, and our children fully expect to go. Yeah, yeah they fully expect to go. That's part of their summer, too. I'm trying to get too, my kids know? to not want to go. <laughs> I want to focus on the artists. So yeah. I'm going to ask you all about your favorite Winter Park memories shortly, but let's bring Becky back into the conversation. Okay. So, Becky, you have to tell us about this year's lineup, and of course, you have to mention one of my favorite artists, Mr. Pretty Wings, this woman's work himself. <laughs> Maxwell. Wow. You know, over the years, we've actually asked the audience, who do you want to see? So a lot of times people will look at these artists and say, that's not jazz. But the jazz audience is requesting these artists. So Maxwell has been a name that we've heard many, many times. Mm. And we were finally able to get him at a time, you know, when he wasn't booked somewhere else. Mm -hmm. On Sunday, we have... Dave Koz Summerhorns. Dave Koz is one of those guys that he's an ultimate entertainer. He knows how to perform, but he'll bring some of the top names in jazz with him every single time. So this year it's Dave Koz, Candy Dolfer, who we've never had up there. We have uh, Eric Darius on the ticket. He's always a favorite. And then Mesa. So that is a hot, hot package. Damian Escobar. Okay, and I know uh, Stephanie might need a fan because I know she is a huge fan of him personally and his music. (laughs) He has been, I mean, he was there, what was it, three three years ago? And I got to say, the response that he got was so overwhelming that, again, he's one of those requested artists that we thought, well, if we're celebrating 40 years, why not a Damien Escobar? Our festival is the third weekend of July every year. And so a lot of times we may want somebody, but then they're not available. He was available and we knew he was he's a favorite. So we're glad that he's one of those guys that he'll go out into the audience and just really connects. You may not know his name, but you remember him after his show because of 
how he connects and the songs that he plays on the violin. I absolutely lost it when he did Purple Rain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was just an amazing <laughs> moment. It's like you're in the mountains, you got this beautiful backdrop, everyone's in a good mood, it's very relaxing. And then he plays Prince. It's like, <laughs> okay, I'm done. Like they say, put a fork in me. I'm done. <laughs> but, you know, I think he's, uh, you know, we do like the family atmosphere. And if there's an artist that stands out with kids, that means so much to us. And Tracy, I know you told me your boys started playing violin. Mm-hmm. Because your of whole him. family was Because the, of Damien Escobar at, yes. the, at the Winter Park Jazz Festival. Sure. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. They got to meet him, and they've been playing the violin ever since. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Amazing. Amazing. And it, like you said, maybe it's also all about exposure. Because mm-hmm. honestly, I had not heard of Damien until the festival. Mm-hmm. And it made me look him up and start listening to his music. Mm-hmm. And so, Becky, is there anything extra special happening this year for the anniversary? <laughs> is anything, any well, little hints that we could get? While we are... Very ecstatic that we're celebrating 40 years. We're not really doing any bells and whistles other than Maxwell. That's probably (laughs) one of the biggest names we've ever booked. And so with that, um, that's how we're saying thank you for your support. And we appreciate that people will continue to support. So if you have Tracy and Stephanie and (laughs) people that come year after year, what we've built is something that it really doesn't even matter who the lineup is. It's that weekend that you know you're going to Winter Park because you know it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Now, there may be a name on there that you don't know. Mm-hmm. And then you get turned on to somebody. There mm-hmm. may be somebody on there that you think you don't like. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, wow, that was a great live show. The best part is, and this is the best part for me, is the camaraderie. Everybody's having a great time. Even if you just come up for the day. Like if you don't stay you can drive back and be back home before the sun goes down. Mm-hmm. People are coming up, they're renting condos, they're, they're you know, everybody getting together in the condo, whether it's a fish fry or, a, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's saying, go to so-and-so's condo. And we do have after parties. DJ Al, your pal, does the, uh, the official after party. Mm-hmm. So it's a good time. I, I'm very proud of being part of the festival for, I think, 30 or 31 years. And uh, hope that we can continue to do this as long as people continue to support. And like I said, it's not about the lineup. It's about the camaraderie mm-hmm. and the sense of community when you're there. Mm-hmm. My, I invite folks up and for the first time they come and then from there, they're there. Just like you, Chandra. Mm-hmm. You have also recently worked with the city of Denver to lead a concert series at Denver International Airport that will feature national and local jazz and R&B artists. And it kicks off July 30th and runs through September at the airport's open air park on the plaza. Now, sadly for many of us, the series is pretty much <laughs> sold out, or I should say reserved out because the tickets yeah. were free. But I just wanted to ask, is that part of a personal mission for you to bring this genre of music to Colorado and Denver? It absolutely is. I just think that, you know, we don't really get to see a lot of the artists. You know, I just wanted to do something different. I teamed up with Sandra Holman Watts, who was the owner of uh, Live at Jack's. It closed during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. and Which was a he, uh, live music venue right on the 16th yeah. Street Mall that we missed. Right. Yes. <laughs> and we still have the Soil Dove, which does a lot of the shows. And there's a new place called Orchid in downtown Denver. Mm. But what we know for sure, and if we didn't learn anything else during the pandemic, is that people love and need live music. We needed it even more when we couldn't have it during mm-hmm. the pandemic, mm-hmm. you know. So Mm -hmm. we could get every other thing met. We could get our food, drinks, and all of this stuff. 
but we couldn't go to a live show. And that really felt so, it was just so bizarre that we didn't know how long that we were going to be in quarantine, not going to live music. But once it finally opened back up, the artists came back with relief. The audience came out and started supporting even more because now they know how important it is because when you don't have something, you recognize how important it is. And so I thought, you know, Sandra and I teamed up and we just thought, you know, it'd be really cool. We teamed up with the CEO of the airport, Phil Washington, and uh, they had been wanting to do something like that. They do smaller type events out there. This is our first time doing this. And hopefully, you know, we're, we're ecstatic that uh, we got to capacity in like 30 hours, which is great. And we uh, we do have a waiting list out there. The shows are free, and we hope that we can continue to do something like this in Denver. And the lineup, Colorado's own, Gerald Albright, Dot Zero, the Mary Louise Lee Band, After Seven, Richard Elliott. So pretty impressive group. We got our Thanks. tickets. We sure did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said that I was going to ask you this, uh, Tracy and Stephanie, so... Favorite Winter Park Jazz Festival memory? My daughter was pulling me through the park because she wanted to get closer to see Damien Escobar. And then it's like he left the stage for a minute but started, he came out the side and he was walking down right towards us. And I was like, Troy, Troy, Troy. We look up, there he is. And he was so sweet. He was just walking by, but he just kind of touched you on your shoulder and you know that with my daughter and make pictures. my daughter yes it, oh. it's hard for to make my daughter be quiet and she <laughs> she was just in awe she the rest stunned. of the day like mm-hmm. oh my god he touched my shoulder <laughs> yeah this is making me think of my first concerts uh my my childhood friend actually took the shirt that she had on and the artist had touched her shoulder and she hung it on her bedroom wall. I so kind of kind of makes me think about like a Cosby show episode or something. Yes. <laughs> so Tracy, what stands out for you about the Winter Park Jazz Festival in terms of memories? Um, mine wasn't a specific moment, but it was the year that Mint Condition and Charlie Wilson Ooh. were both going to be there that same weekend. And I just had my twins about three or four weeks before, and everyone was saying, you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to go up there. You just had babies. You, you can't do that. We packed up those babies, and <laughs> I was there for the entire two days, and it was just the best. I mean, two of my absolute favorite artists were there at the same time. There was no way I was going to miss it. She said, hold my beer, or should I say, hold this bottle. I got to say, one of my highlights, too, was seeing Tracy's boys, because you don't see that kind of excitement at jazz concerts, and it was Mm -hmm. so refreshing to Mm -hmm. see that they were that much into it. Um, My daughter, I started taking her when she was 10, and she then I tried to get her to be entertained so I bought her a camera she ended up being a photographer Mm -hmm. and now my granddaughters go up it has become generational and it creates tradition Mm -hmm. it just does Mm -hmm. it does and it does. when you think about jazz music, I've heard lots of discussion about it being somewhat of a dying breed and to have young people being able to appreciate jazz and then also to listen to our old people music. <laughs> I'm, I have quote, air quotations right now. That That's still impressive to show them the generations of artists that they probably would not be listening to. <laughs> right, right, right. Pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, Tracy... Stephanie, Becky, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. We will see you up there, Chandra. That was Becky Taylor, the longtime MC and host of the Winter Park Jazz Festival, which celebrates 40 years on July 15th through 16th at the Rendezvous Event Center in Winter Park, featuring a plethora of jazz and R&B acts, including Damien Escobar, Jazz Funk Soul, the Dave Kaz Summerhorns with Candy Dulfer, Leela James, and my personal favorite, Maxwell. When we come back, reflections from the fest under the backdrop of some of the artists that have rolled through the sleepy little Grand County town of Winter Park over the past 40 years. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. What a beautiful evening for some music outside. Indy 1023 is proud to be a media partner of Levitt Pavilion. The season's underway with ticketed shows, plus over 50 shows open to the public. Down for a couple more songs. Tickets and for the full concert calendar, levittdenver.org. Before the break, you heard from Becky Taylor, longtime host and MC of the Winter Park Jazz Festival. It's become an institution for generations of Coloradans. It celebrates 40 years this weekend. Now we share reflections about the fest from a diverse mix of Coloradans amid the sounds of some of the artists who've been a part of this time-honored tradition. Hi, my name is Hanifa Chiku, the Winter Park Jazz Festival. My first one I went to was about 1990 when it was held on the mountainside on the ski slopes of Winter Park. It took your breath away when you walked into the venue and you looked on the mountain. You had the wide view of the whole layout of everything. The stage, who's coming and going, the vendor area. It was wonderful. You went with the group. Somebody was always the early riser to put the supplies up and the rest of the crowd would come down I prefer to sit in the general admission, the grassy area, because that's where the party's at. You have people that have been coming here for years that have come from all parts of the country. This is like their annual vacation that they take. People who have moved away religiously come back to this. Hi, my name is Tawana Henderson and I live in the Greater Park Hill area. I'm originally from Detroit. Coming here and then hearing about the Winter Park Jazz Festival was really exciting. My favorite artist that I'd love to see is Jonathan Butler. One of my favorite concerts, being able to take a picture of him after the concert. See, one of the things about the concerts there, uh, especially in the early days, is that the performers would actually give you autographs. So whenever Jonathan Butler was in the lineup, I was definitely there. My name is Kiva. I'm a Denver native. I grew up going to Winter Park for skiing, but also for the jazz festival. I feel like I've been up on the hill, probably in diapers. It's very, 
very multi-generational because I've gone with my parents as an adult, as a child, and I'll actually be there this weekend with a group of girlfriends. For me, it's a thing of seeing who can survive their set because altitude. Make sure you stay hydrated, get your coconut water, get your oxygen. Hi, I'm Holly from Aurora Winter Park. We've been going for almost 20 years. Yeah, Spider-Man and freezing full effect. Uh-huh. You ready, Ron? I'm ready. You ready, Dave? I'm ready, Slick, are you? My favorite memory is when BBD asked if anyone from Denver could dance. And my friends began to summon them. It was such a community, fun-filled family time. You know, dancing on stage with Bill Bibsabo was a dream come true. If you haven't been to the Winter Park Jazz Fest, you're missing out. It's also Relationships they seem from the start. Arthur McCaskill, and I've been here in Colorado now since high school. Going to Winter Park is about the reunion with all your friends and people that uh, have the same mindset as, as far as jazz is concerned. And we plan on coming up on Friday and staying the entire weekend. I'm uh, looking forward to uh, Maxwell. All I wanna Hi, I'm Donna. I live in Denver by way of Beaumont, Texas. One of the things that I really love about the Jazz Festival is in the state of Colorado, Black folks, we only make up, you know, 4.2% of the demographics. Here in Denver, we're less than 10% of the population. So to get up to Winter Park and to see that that place has been completely overtaken by Black folks is absolutely amazing. And we have such a great time, so much fun. This year, I'm going to be short. One person, my partner in crime, who usually comes with me, Kalani, she passed away a couple of weeks ago from cancer. And so this is going to be my first Winter Park without her. Every year I've gone to Winter Park, I've had her with me. So this year is going to be extra, extra special, and I plan on going all out. It's been an absolute great experience, so I'm totally looking forward to it. This is national recording artist, saxophonist, Tony Exum Jr. Winter Park is a premier event. And to me, it's probably one of Colorado's, if not Colorado's most unifying event. There are people from every major city in the state, from all walks of life, black, white, Hispanic, who come together one weekend and just enjoy an incredible amount of music and seeing the best entertainers in contemporary jazz and R&B and old school. So it's one of those situations that people look forward to. It's like you always see family members you haven't seen in a long time or longtime friends or people you went to high school with. It's always a family type vibe whenever you go to Winter Park. And I think that's the most important thing about it. It's like one big, huge family. You're going to see a, a lot of smiling faces, a lot of people having fun. For me personally, as an artist, 
I've had great experiences on that stage, you know, to finally grace that stage in 2019 as a solo artist, kicking off the festival that year uh, was very special. That was a milestone because a lot of artists look forward to at some point gracing that stage as part of their professional journey. And to know that uh, my home state has embraced me and, and supported me all these years. And I saw a lot of look of pride on people's faces while I was on that stage. And that felt amazing. With all the energy they were giving me, allowed me to harness that and return it to everyone on stage musically. A lot of great festivals have come and gone. So for Winter Park to be able to hold on and remain an institution for 40 years speaks volume to not just Winter Park, but the community of Colorado keeping it going. Very proud of that stage. Very proud to be a part of Winter Park. Happy 40th anniversary. Happy 40th anniversary, Winter Park Jazz Festival. Congratulations to Winter Park for the 40th anniversary of the Winter Park Jazz Festival. Special thanks to audio producer Michael Hughes, who worked with me on that segment. Again, the 40th annual Winter Park Jazz Festival is this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, at Rendezvous Event Center, featuring a plethora of jazz and R&B acts. We'll link to more information on the fest at CPR.org. That's our show for today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC.